0: You may not know that is, uh, was the key song in a musical called Godspell. And it came out in the 70s and uh, it, was, it was amazing. It took Broadway by storm. You couldn't get a ticket to this show no matter what. It, it made Hamilton look easy to get into. As a matter of fact, I got into Hamilton a couple months ago I just went on the day of the show and, and bought a ticket and walked in um, because I am so cool and I know how to do some things. Um, but you couldn't get in, into Godspell because it was so popular. It was written, this is crazy, it was written in five weeks. Uh, this guy just had this idea and he put it together. And um, he, he really, it's, what, what is very interesting about this is this happened during uh, the whole drug-induced hippie revolution in our country. It was a really challenging time, but it was also the formation of the Jesus movement. I've talked to you guys about this before. And, and this guy wrote this to give people an avenue or a way to God because he felt like the church was not doing that, that the church was... was um, Removed from all of his friends, and, and I remember uh, just I, I had all the songs memorized I, I went to during this time, I was in the music conservatory at shenandoah, and the the, the the most corrupt people I know would listen to that song and just begin to cry because they they knew the musical they knew what had happened and what was going on and, and so I thought i 'd start today because. I think that song and this picture uh, has a lot to do with where we are today. And I, um, I, I, I really, as I think about this whole salt-like thing and who the church is supposed to be and what it is that we're supposed to be doing, I really want you to understand where we are and why we are who we are. <clears throat> and I'm, I want to I just give you some things to, to think about. Now that song... Well, well the, first of all, Godspell was was written uh, out of Matthew chapter, or, well, the whole book of Matthew. The, the the musical actually was the book of Matthew, and but it was just written from a guy who wasn't part of church. He he accepted Christ in a in a, in a some kind of a Jesus movement deal, and he just exploded with his love, newfound love for Christ. But this song comes out of Psalm 137. Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote this, and he wrote this, he says, Beside the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, as we thought of Jerusalem. Now, just for a setting, um, I want you to understand where this is in history. Jerusalem, actually all of Israel, was invaded by Babylon, and almost all of the important people and young people were taken captive and taken to Babylon. Now Babylon was not a city that was like, uh, you know, going to Falls Church from here. It was 900 miles away, almost a thousand miles actually. And this happened 600 years before Christ. So imagine the gulf in the world. That's like going to space, right? It's just you don't cross that. It's just so far and so far away. And these people who lived for their faith, lived for Judaism, lived for all the things that the prophets had taught them, were taken away from all of that. And it says that we put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land. This, um, this past week, I was conducting a funeral, and uh, it was uh, a funeral for a, a dear woman who was a friend of, of Pam's. Uh, they used to work together. And, uh, but it was a very difficult funeral because of the cultural element that was involved. I... I calculated at least four different cultures in in, in the people that I was to address. Um, There were people who were full-on Christ followers. That was me, Pam, and one of her friends. That was that culture. Then there was this nominal church culture. The the people for whom we were conducting the funeral um, had... Church recollection. They were part of a church, uh, I believe it was a Catholic church, maybe 50 years ago. They stopped going, but they knew enough to think that there's a God and, and even Jesus, And but that was about it. In fact, they had absolutely no way to process the death of this woman and, and what was to happen next. No, no picture of what the future held for her or for themselves. Then there was the culture of atheism. There was a whole group of people that were totally atheistic. And then uh, another group that was from a questionable religious sect. And that was, that was my audience. And I can tell you, I felt really uncomfortable. I, 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 I loved Different people, different cultures, different backgrounds, and I seem to glide all over the place. But to have that many different scenarios in one setting, and you're supposed to say something of meaning, was was challenging. And I did my best. I, I you know, I gave it my best shot. But I had some of the feeling of Psalm 137. This is such a distant land. This is such a different place. What do I do with this? It, it, it was like. A lament. How, do you, how do you deal with it? And, and probably the most difficult part of it was the fact that it involved death. And where do you go with that? How do you bring comfort, represent Christ, and be respectful of the people who were there? I find today that that is something that the church... And, and the church is not a building or a, a Sunday service. The church is us, those who, of us who are Christ followers. I, I find that we find ourselves with those questions a lot. What are we doing? What, what, how do you deal with culture? What do you do with, with I, I don't know if you know this, but we are a minority in the United States simply because we follow Christ. And, and so how do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, it was in the middle of that kind of culture that Jesus showed up. And here's what he said out of Matthew 5. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In other words, Jesus is looking at Psalm 137 and says, it's time to make a change. Now, I'll, I'll tell you about this in a minute. It is no longer, this salt is no longer good for anything if, if it's lost its taste except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And praise your Father in heaven. Now this wasn't just a New Testament idea. In fact, the same person, Jeremiah, who wrote Psalm 137 and says, we can no longer sing, we can no longer play our music, we can no longer have joy in our lives because we are so far from where we are supposed to be. That same writer, and I know it was intentional because he was dealing with the emotion of the thing, But then he gives a prophecy that is incredible. Jeremiah 29, chapter 4 says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All of the people who were captured and taken away to Babylon, they they were hoping that this would end in a few weeks and they could go back to where they belonged. But Jeremiah said this, he said, while in Babylon, he says, build houses and settle down. That is not what they wanted to hear. He said, plant gardens and eat what they produce. So this isn't going to happen in a couple of weeks, right? Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Oh, wow, now we've just moved into grandchildren. How long are we going to be here? Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. In other words, you hate Babylon. You hate this city. Now I want you to bring peace and prosperity to it. I want you to bless it. I want you to contribute to it. Pray to the Lord for that city because if it prospers, now I want you to understand this. If it prospers, you will prosper. Well, I want to talk about where we are today, what we've done, where we should be, and how sometimes I think the church is quoting Psalm 137 and living in that world when we should be listening to the rest of what Jeremiah taught, what we're supposed to do here, and what Jesus taught us about being light and salt. We're, we're living in a culture that is um, very challenging, very difficult for us, and Jesus, according to the salt and light thing, is talking about cultural invasion. Now, you, you've, some of you will remember, it's been quite a few months ago now, I talked about culture And basically there are seven influences in culture today, seven voices of influence. Three, four, five, six, I want to make sure I don't miss any. Um, The first one is church. Then there's no particular order. These are just all the things in our world that influence culture. You've got family, you've got business, you've got government, uh, arts and entertainment. You've got education and you've got media. These are primarily the influencers of our culture. And so what happens, and it's happened multiple times, it was happening here in Jerusalem, and it's been happening throughout history. It happened in the New Testament when Jesus got up in the Sermon on the Mount and He begins to talk about salt and light. It happened again. It happened in 1970 uh, in the early late '60s, early '70s when Godspell was written, and it's happened today, and that is that the kingdom of God competes with culture. So in what happens with, when we compete with culture, when we, you know we go like this to culture, there is this gulf, this separation that we're over here in this culture, and all of this, we just ignore, or we don't want anything to do with or we stay away from it, or we, we, we come up with some reason why this is never going to work, and then we start finding all of our hope and future in, in, in politics, or uh, in the second coming of Jesus, and let's just keep our head down until Jesus comes back, or we die, or... You know, whatever. And, and and then we talk about Revelation. We read the end of the book and we win. That is not winning. <laughs> don't don't think that that's winning. That is not the, the picture that Jesus gave us. It isn't when He taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wasn't talking about hanging on to the end. But the church competes with culture. And the next thing you know, the church becomes the enemy of culture, and the church becomes irrelevant to culture. So when this musical Godspell was written, it was a pagan's dream of being part of the body of Christ. And there was no way that he saw to get in. So he goes to Broadway. Amazing concept the most incredible thing that that could ever take place. Well, when we finally begin to understand this and we decide that we want to break the barrier, one of the things that the church has historically done is instead of embracing it, we start to accommodate culture. And that usually starts poorly because what we then think that we have to do is become like everybody else. If we can, you know, all these other people, we'll just become like them. Uh, and it, in, in missions terminology, that's called syncretism. It's the most ineffective way to, to change anything. You, you become like them. Remember, Paul said um, that, that we are supposed to be in the world, not of the world. And so, but we're not in it for the most part as the Church of Jesus Christ today. Uh, and, and, and the idea of, of, of the world takes over in our first attempts to accommodate culture. But when we really begin to understand what God wants to do, we understand that salt, as I've talked about last week, salt brings value. To something, It brings weightiness, it brings truth, it brings substance to things that are missing here. And then Jesus teaches us about light. He says not only are you to bring substance, you're supposed to bring light. You're supposed to bring something that people really, really want. And then finally, if we get this right, the kingdom transforms culture. And it's something that God does in an incredible way when the church really understands who we are and what we're supposed to be doing. So I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about this transformation, this, this well, the transition to get to where God wants us to be. I want to <clears throat> say this too. When we become, well, when we misunderstand the church, we begin to lose the ability to communicate in the world. If we think the church is the is the focus, is the goal, we've missed the purpose. The church is not the goal. Growing church, getting big church, getting all the building this, this, this thing over here that is our world is not the goal. In fact, it's everything that Jesus taught against in, in Matthew chapter 5. We're not, trying to, we're not trying to grow the church. We need to grow the kingdom. Jesus gave us the church not to be a, the goal or the end. He gave it to us to be the hammer. In Matthew 16, when Jesus announced the, the, the formation of this ecclesia, this church thing that nobody had ever heard of before, it was to storm hell. It wasn't to be its own thing, to exist for itself. It was meant to change the world. And we become weak. We become ineffective. And and, and we're not changing the world. In fact, if you look at the numbers, we're losing in a a huge way. And that is not God's plan. And, And so we need to address this. And one of the things that happens in all of this is we don't know how to communicate over here anymore. We... We don't know how to talk to non-believers. Now, I'm, I think our church has such a great opportunity. Uh, this expression, destiny expression, has such a great opportunity because so many of you are what I would call first-generation believers. You've accepted Christ right here. This is, this is maybe the only church you've ever been in and only know and, 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 or ever had a relationship with Christ through this ministry. So it'll be easier for us to make this transition than maybe a lot of places. But even this, we'll be 19... Well, actually, (laughs) on Halloween night, we turn 19 years old as a church. And, And if you're not careful, over time, we can do what everybody else has done and become removed. And we don't know how to communicate. So I want to give you a couple of things here today that just talks about personal changes that you and I need to make. I need to make these things. You need to do this for us to be who we're supposed to be. On your notes, I want you to write down this word because this is something that we have to give to people. It's called honor. We need to honor people around us. People who are not like us. People who are different than us. People who don't agree with us on just about everything. You know who they are. And you tend to not like them. And they don't like you. So it's we're, we're even. Now that we know that, what does Jesus want us to do? And so one of the things that we can begin to do is to honor them. First Peter 2.17 says, Honor everyone. Say that with me. Honor everyone. Who is everyone? Everyone. And then it says, Love the brotherhood. That's cool. We're good at that. We got that. Honor everyone. I want to give you three words to help you understand what it means to honor people. How do you do that? First of all, write down the word presence. Presence. Not like Christmas presents. Presence. That presence right there on the screen. Being there. Now, this has to do with asking important personal questions and then listening to the answers. Be there for somebody. Jesus did this all the time. He was always asking people intriguing, personal questions. In fact, if you go through the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find out that there are over a hundred questions that Jesus asked in his communication, and he had a lot of communication with, with sinners that we don't know anything about—people who were not part of the, the church world at that time. He he was accused of being a friend of sinners. Well, how did he befriend those people? He did it by asking intriguing questions and then listening to the answers. Just you know, uh, God, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up in the tree? That's a that's an important question. Why are you there? Um, the uh, the the woman at the well. Where's your husband? The, the blind man. What is it that you really want? The woman caught in adultery. Where are your accusers? In other words, in his questioning, in his presence, he bestowed honor. He let them know that they counted. That they really mattered. I... Um, I, I have a, uh, a place that I go every Saturday. It's a, it's a new thing in my life. Um, on Saturday mornings, I get up pretty early, and uh, I, I go to this little coffee shop. And about six months ago, I, they have an outdoor seating area, and I had my coffee, and I'm sitting out there in these big chairs, and I'm enjoying my quiet time, you know, just, just chilling out. And these two guys came over and they sat down. And one of them sat on this side of me and one sat on that side. And they start talking to each other. And so I literally, I said, hey, would you guys like me to move and then you guys can sit beside each other and talk? And they said, no, this is fun. <laughs> and, and right away, I liked them. I, Okay, so we talked about, I don't know what we talked about. And we've been doing it every Saturday since then. Um, a couple times, you know, one of us didn't show up, but we've been meeting every week. And, and yesterday, um, I told them that I was, wasn't going to be there next week because I had something else I was doing, and they jumped all over me. Like, i got a life, guys. But, but the, the, the reality is, I think this may be one of the most important meetings i have because i know where these guys are coming from only took one conversation for me to realize okay we're coming from a different place it took me like three months just to admit i was a pastor i didn't and that was that was a rough day for for at least one of them you know he's sitting there thinking okay what the blankety blank did i say you know to, to mess this guy, you know, it, it, it was. I, I was laughing, but it was kind of fun. But then, you know, I had by that time been able to give such value to them that they didn't want me leaving. They, 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 they want me there. Yesterday, well, I'm not going to tell you about yesterday. I'm going to tell you about yesterday in two weeks from now. Um, is it, it was a pretty cool moment. But, but these two guys, are, are, I, I just feel it's extremely important to have those conversations. It's, it's incredible. One of the guys brought, brought his wife yesterday. I met her and, and, and amazing people, you know, and, and they have nothing to do with anything in my life except the coffee shop. But perhaps there's so much more to that presence, asking questions, listening, giving value to. Another thing that you can write under honor is respect. Respect. Respect recognizes differences in others. And you don't gloss over them. You don't condemn them. You simply recognize the difference. In fact, if you do gloss over them, I think you're disrespectful. It's like you know, telling somebody of a different race, I don't see color. You know, I'm colorblind. That's that's stupid. You can't see the difference between me and an African American person. I, I mean, there's a difference. And and so, in respect, we embrace the differences. We celebrate the difference. That's a third word. We celebrate. We make room in our relationships to have someone share significant moments related to their their diversity. We celebrate. We don't tolerate. We celebrate. We give the gift of public honor and affirmation and validation and esteem. We look for ways that we can honor them and bless them and love them and care for them and, and acknowledge the value that God places on them. I can tell you this, in today's political climate, the church has dropped the ball. Because we pick sides. We teach people things that were not in the Bible. We 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 you know we've got our values and and politics. It's it's not about politics, folks. Jesus didn't die for a party. He died for people. He gave everything for people. And the church has aligned itself politically on both sides of the spectrum. And every time we do that, we lose the ability to touch at least half of our population. So we should validate people. This is actually a very interesting time in our nation. Everybody acknowledges the fact that we're a mess for whichever side you choose to come from. What a great time to be the church. What a great time to introduce an entirely different conversation about the value of people based on who our Heavenly Father is. Honor. Second thing I want you to write down there is humility. Humility. Colossians 3.12 Since God chose you, talking about the church here, since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Humility is a choice. It's a posture. It's the way that we are with people. It's a great way to endear yourself to people. It's the acknowledgement that you don't know Everything. That you don't have all the answers. That you don't have it all together. Humility says, hey, I mess up. Humility says, I I don't do it right. I don't know everything. And even if you have the greatest answer in the world to life, which is Jesus Christ, you have no cause to be proud. You should be humble. Humility. Humility has a few components. One of those is curiosity. We should be curious about people. We we should be curious about where they come from. Curious about what makes them the way they are. Curious about why they think differently than us. Not so that we can pick a fight with them, but so that we can begin to understand. I have a professor, Howard Foltz, in grad school. He is one of the greatest missiologists of all times. He and David Nelms and, and Vernon Brewer are probably the three greatest world changers I know of. He wrote this one time, I I think it was amazing. He said, one of the greatest mistakes of a colonial attitude in business, education, or religion is the missed opportunities that have come from a cultural illiteracy. Until we know another culture, and I I don't want you to think now about racial cultures, I want want you to think about people who are not like you. Because that's culture today. He says, until we know another culture and are curious and humble enough to investigate it, we really don't know our own culture in view of the strengths, weaknesses, prejudices, and the achievements that are unique to it. Instead of forming our opinions in a bubble, we should be curious. We should wonder why people think the way they think. Let me give you an example. I have a... Every year, I, I, I meet with our... I, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm in business. Just, I don't get paid from here. I, I have a business I run. I've been doing this forever, it seems like. And November is... Uh, late October, November is one of my most fun times of the year because I, I just take everybody. We go somewhere for two or three days uh, for a sales retreat. And, and it's just an awesome time. And uh, it's always on a... Either we'll go Sunday night... Uh, be there Monday and Tuesday, or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever it is. It's always um, Monday night football is part of the retreat. Um, so for the ladies, uh, well, there are a couple of ladies that enjoy it. Um, but um, we're this was a year ago. We're sitting down, and a whole controversy about about kneeling during the the uh, whatever you call that thing. Um, came up, and I'm, I, I'm, I get fired up about that, okay? I, I haven't, well, I almost burned my redskin jersey, but it wasn't because of the flag. It was because of the redskins. Um, <laughs> that's changing, by the way. Thank you, Jesus. Um, so I made my comment, and I have this African-American lady who is on our sales team, and she's amazing. She's just, I mean, amazing in terms of what she can do. And she really challenged me on what I said. And, you know, it was only three minutes into the game and we were already down like two touchdowns or something, so the game didn't matter that much anymore. And so we just started talking. And we are in we're so far different in how we grew up, our experiences, our exposure. And she said something that in my world, in my culture, uh, this has been like a cuss word. She used the word affirmative action. And I I said, well, tell me, what did that do for you? Because, you know, the people that, that I've spent a lot of time with they all they they think they know about this. They they make their decisions, and you know, based on what? Nothing. So she began to talk to me, and she said, "I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for affirmative action." I said, "Really?" And she goes, "Yeah." She goes, "You don't know where I came from. She said, I came from like the poorest of the poor." And she said, "We grew up in a place that." We were always told, you will never amount to anything. You'll never have a chance at anything. She said, I got into college, and I couldn't hardly read. And she said, but I got in because of affirmative action. And I've been able to, to learn and grow. And I graduated with a business degree and, and it allowed me to get involved in the insurance world. And she said, and then you hired me. And she goes, everything has changed. It has, it, I, she said, I look at where I came from and I look at all of those who I left behind. And she said, my world changed. And I just, wow. I've only looked at it through my lens, through my, my eyes. And I missed it. And I I repented. I repented to God. I repented to her. I said, and and so we've been having all these conversations. I mean, you wonder what's wrong with me now. It's, it's her. Uh, you know, <laughs> she's messing with me. Because I had some preset ideas that were just, frankly, disgusting. And so I've had to rethink what I thought because I don't come where she came from. I, it, you know, I don't, I'm not making excuses for anybody or anything. I just know that I'm a product of where I came from. I, I, I do think everything gets filtered. We talked about this in the last series. Everything gets filtered through all of the things that happened in my life. It's like all the neurons kick in because of my experience. And that's true of everyone. But I put everybody in my experience and think that's the way it should be. And as long as I do that, I fail. As long as I do that, I cannot be a blessing to others outside of my realm. And so this curiosity thing, mixed with the next thing, there's flexibility, which is this. And this is so important. It's important in church. It's important in the world. The ability to minor on the minors. Flexibility. We may not have all the answers, folks. We may not have it all right. We may not have it all figured out. We act like we do sometimes, but we don't. And so humility says, okay, God, what do you want to teach me? It says to a person who's not like us, what can you teach me? I want to know. Because they have some things to share. Teachability is a third thing, third part of humility. I wrote this down. We must maintain a lifelong learning posture. God uses cultural differences to teach us about Himself and His kingdom. Until I look at perspectives that are different than my own, I block out an entire culture from hearing the gospel. I'm not talking, again, about racial culture. I'm talking about any culture. As long as I've got the answers and I can only look at it through my lens, I block out a whole group of people who will never know Jesus unless I make a change. So, there's some questions here that we need to ask. Or need to answer, I should say. And in my notes, I I put questions we need to answer to our forefathers and our grandchildren. We need to reply to what's been behind us and we need to prepare for what's in front of us. Number one, what can we promote and preserve? And right in there in that line, the word celebration. What is it with others that we can celebrate? There are things that we need to celebrate intentionally In our own community, right here where we live, what are things that we can engage in and celebrate that isn't our deal? What can we do to step outside of the building here and begin to celebrate with others? We could probably find a lot of things. And these things are huge relationship building materials. On Sunday, i got it written down here, December 16th, Destiny School of the Arts. You know, every year, they come and they invade our church. It's pretty uncomfortable for a couple of reasons. First of all, y'all are always late to church. And by the time you get here on those days, you don't have a seat. Then you get all mad at me, like I made you late and you missed your seat. But we've just accommodated this group. Well, it keeps getting larger and larger. Last year, I think we had 120 students in the school, and you multiply that by parents and grandparents, and it's a big crowd. Well. This year, they're at almost 180 kids, and you're not going to get a seat. So here's what we're doing, because we want to celebrate Christmas with these people. And you know the deal, this is not a Christian school. We didn't start a Christian school. We started a school of the arts. And we have all kinds of cultures in our school. It just happens to be led by believers who have a passion to build relationships and lead people to Christ. And so, we've outgrown the ability to do what we do. So this year, um, we're going to move our service time on that Sunday to 9 o'clock. Early. And then, their deal's going to be at 11, and we're going to serve them. We're going to bless them. We're going to, you know, we give away Christmas gifts and stuff like that all the time. We're going to be giving gifts to them. We're going to... Take care of their kids, the little kids that aren't in the show. We're going to help them with the photography and all the stuff that's going We're going to feed them. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff just for them. We're going to celebrate with these people with no agenda. There's going to be no agenda on our part except to love them, to care for them. Those are the kinds of things that, that we need to promote and preserve and, and think about doing with others. Number two, what is missing that we can contribute? I call it creating. What is missing that we can contribute? Brody read this passage. He says, "Uh, here's the kind of fasting that I have chosen, says the Lord, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your... In other words, he says, here's how you fast. Here's how you pray. Here's how you worship. You love. You become salt. You become light. So here's what we're going to do. Coming back to Destiny School of the Arts, it was two years ago, maybe two years ago, I told you about something that we wanted to do. We wanted to start influencing kids in a very positive way and the, the idea that we had was, let's bring in a little kid that can't speak English or read or write. And let's teach them to do that. Because we learned from one of our teachers here that if these children get into elementary school and they cannot read, they can't write, they can't speak English, they're always going to be four years behind. If they do graduate from high school, they'll never go to college. They'll have a hard time getting a job and their life is just going to be a pain from then on so we thought what if we could teach a kid English so one of you so gracious and we didn't even ask for anything but this person wrote a check for five thousand dollars and gave it to us to pay for the first year's tuition for this child she was two years old by the time she was four she could speak fluent English and could write she just has blown off the charts in terms of education she's she's a second grader no first grader now and we've guaranteed her tuition all the way through for through the fifth grade and when she goes into public school she's going to be amazing and one gift here did that it's one gift because it cost us about $60,000 to do this for a child, but because of that, God blessed us in such a way that we could cover her all the way through with some seed money. Let me tell you where we are today. We have 11 of these children in school now. 11 of them, we're, we're, 7 of them, 100% guaranteed Tuition through the entire length of their time at school. Four of these are children that speak no English, and we're teaching them English. Three of those children have single moms, and they're very, very poor. And there's, there's no way they could have come to this school. And, but that, that one move, that one check, change this entire thing and i know god has blessed that school because of the commitment they've made our goal now is to have a tithe of our students ten percent we're at uh 11 right now and we we should be at about 17 but we've done this in two years so think about what we get to do by creating what can we contribute what can we do to change things as a church um I, I'm going to talk to you in a moment about our Thanksgiving offering. But here's another example, another opportunity that we have as a church to change things around us. Good Shepherd Alliance um, had all their funding taken away from them by the county and the state because they, they had some things that, as, as a Christian organization, they wanted to do. And, and the county and state said, well, we can't fund it. So they pulled $100,000 out of their budget. And they, they've been sending out letters saying, hey, we're going to fold if something doesn't change. We need some time to to catch up and to to get our our sponsors together. So what we're going to do is give 30% of our our Thanksgiving offering to Good Shepherd Alliance. I'm hoping that it's $30,000. I'm hoping our goal is $100,000. If we take that amount of money and then we start knocking on some church doors and saying, hey, we want you to match this, We'll cover that thing and make sure that the homeless in our neighborhoods have some place to go. I've seen this ministry. I've seen it operate. It's an amazing ministry that these people do. And they do it in the name of Jesus. And they love people practically. And, and it's creating. Number three, what evil can we stop? Write down comf- uh, Confronting. Jesus said, I'll put together my church and it'll be so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. It's a a power organization that God has. What if somebody decides, hey, I want to take care of of helping some people who are in sex trafficking. You know, sex trafficking is all around us. You know where the hotbed in the United States is? the, The place where trafficking takes place the most? You might think New York City or Las Vegas it's Branson, Missouri. Blue Hair City, what I call it. Don't ask me why, but oh my gosh. Little girls are trucked in there like animals. What if what if the church decides no, no more because it says right there, uh, no more barriers between heaven and earth, earth and heaven. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven and a no on earth is a no in heaven. What if the church says no? What about immigrants who are, who are abused and, and ignored in our country who, who aren't legal? What did Jesus say? He says embrace and love the foreigners. We, we don't have to get political to take care of some kid that needs to learn English or needs food. What if the church says yes? on earth as it is in heaven. Finally, what brokenness can we restore? It's called curing. Curing. I want to talk about Cuba. We have an opportunity, and I believe God's going to use us, this church, to change Cuba. I have this firm commitment. I, we have 250 church planters that are ready to go. We need financing for them. I'm hoping we can give them twenty-five dollars or $30,000 this year because I can get other churches to match that and we'll have a start on a five-year goal that I have to raise money across the country. I need a million dollars to change Cuba, to fund these pastors. They've already started planting churches and 100,000 Cubans have come to Jesus. But you know what they're doing? They're really being taught how to be the church. And so they're caring for the orphans. They're caring for the widows. They take them in. They they do what Jesus told us to do. And we can make a difference. Our Thanksgiving offering is, is huge this year. We've never done this before. But I'm asking you to give $100,000 in this offering above your tithes and offerings. and and, um, There's already people saying, hey, I'm going to step up. I'm going to do this. And some of you have more means than others. I get that. You need to give more. You need to do more for the cause of Christ. So 60% of everything we take in we're giving away to a couple of needs that are huge. The rest of it we're going to use in other missional things in our church and, and other ministries that we have. But we need to go to the mat as a church. We need to do the things that Jesus teaches us to do. I just shared this with our team this week. This was written by a pastor in Chicago, a Presbyterian pastor. And here, he said this, and I thought, man, this is so powerful. He says, a Christian congregation, that's us, is a company of praying men and women who gather usually on Sundays for worship who then go into the world as salt and light. God's Holy Spirit calls and forms this people. God means to do something with us. I'm going to pray and um, ask God to fire us up for His kingdom. And um, hey, if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to pray a prayer just for you. I'm going to invite you to join the kingdom. To get into something that really matters. To be part of something that will change the world. And it will change your life. God wants to be salt and light in your life. So let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for everything that you have given to us. Father, we are so wealthy. The poorest of us in this room are wealthy compared to the rest of the world. And I pray, Father, that we'd use that wealth to honor You. We'd use our personal gifts to honor You, our our personalities, our heart. Father, change the world through us. May people look at this church and not see a building, not see a church service, Let's see an army of love. Father, right now I pray for the person who might be here today who is not a Christ follower, has not asked You to lead their life. And I pray that right now they would make a commitment to You to become Part of the body of Christ. That they would give you the controls of their life and say yes to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.